So I've, sh- I've shared this before, uh, so sorry if you're tired of hearing about it, but it was a monumental year for me and Jess. In 2006, we moved uh, to the Middle Eastern country of Jordan, uh, which is totally parallel from Israel, running up the Jordan River from the Gulf of Aqaba, from the Red Sea. And uh, we spent a year there with uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is our denomination. We built a, a community center there to teach English. It was kind of a tourist town that we were in, and, and English was at a premium. And so we did what we could to help engage the citizens there and teach them English, but also to share the love of Christ with them, obviously. Uh, one of the things that we found fascinating about Jordan is that some claim that about 70% of the population of Jordan would say that they're Palestinian refugees. That their heritage is from Palestine. That they, they or their ancestors were moved out when Israel was given back or taken back the land. I don't want to get into a whole political talk about that. I will afterwards if you'd like to. Uh, but they had to move out and go somewhere, and a large percentage of them wound up in Jordan. And, and one, of the, one of the sort of colloquial sayings is that they would say is that we still have our keys. Someday we'll go back. You see, it still, it still gets to me. Someday we'll be able to go back. Some of those folks, they've never even been there. They're like third generation living in Jordan. They, they were, they're born in Amman or in Aqaba. They've, they've never been to Palestine, but they've got their keys. They're ready to go back to the homeland. Today, as we continue on in this series, Gospel Family Tree, we are in our last section in the Old Testament portion of the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew gives us in Matthew 1. We'll talk about a guy named Zerubbabel. I might just call him Z because I got tired of writing it in my notes this week. But Zerubbabel, we're going to talk about him, and we're going to talk about Israel's holding on to their keys, their return from exile through Babylon and Assyria, and in this case, Babylon. They had their keys, and they were ready to go back home. So we start this morning in exile with Israel, the mid-500 B.C. era. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Matthew 1. Otherwise, we'll throw it up there on the screen for you. I'm going to pick up in this genealogy here and sort of set the stage for how we end up at Captain Z, uh, Zerubbabel, this morning. So starting in verse 6, you remember we got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Boaz, Ruth. Chapter, uh, verse 6 of chapter 1 says, And Jesse fathered King David. He's the, like the best king Israel ever had, right? And David fathered Solomon by Bathsheba, by Uriah's wife. Their son was Solomon, who fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. These are all kings. You can read about these guys. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah, who's the grandfather of Zerubbabel. All right. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. Matthew wants us to see that Israel, 
and these people would have known this, but we need to see this as well, that, that Israel ends up in Babylon after the reign of Jeconiah. You can, like I said, you can read about these in the Kings. And they're exiled to Babylon. People are carted off from their homelands, from the promised land that God had given them. They are carted off to a foreign land, which is basically modern-day Iraq. Solomon, like we talked about last week, ends up being corrupted in his rule and reign. And then after him is just this checkerboard of good king, bad king through the rest of the days. That's what he's tracing for here. There's a history of corruption within these kings that ends up in their deportation to Babylon. They are exiled. Evil people, evil kings, and God uses foreign invaders to come in and take them away to Babylon. And it wasn't because they didn't obey the law. We need to understand this. What Isaiah tells us, uh, God says about the people is that these people, and Jesus quotes this too, these people honor me with their lips. They're doing things, but their hearts are far from me, he says. Israel was exiled because their hearts were far from God. They were sometimes even doing the right stuff, doing the fastings, doing the celebrations, doing the offerings, but their hearts were not in it. They didn't actually love God. They loved themselves. And God allows them to be taken into exile. And in the book of 2 Chronicles, we have sort of laid out for us what this looks like. I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you today. If you don't get there, don't panic, all right? I'll read it. It's a narrative. You'll understand. So this is after all these kings are listed and all these bad things they've done. You get to 2 Chronicles 36. It says this, But the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again. He's sending prophets again and again and again to warn them. For he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, this is Babylon, who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or young women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon, all the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. Remember all those things that Solomon had built? That big old temple with the treasury and the palaces he had built? They wreck it all. Then the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned all its palaces, and destroyed all its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. They had been working and working and working one another, enslaving one another, ripping one another off, destroying the earth, and God says, I'm going to bring rest on the land because you refuse to do it. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, and the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of the desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. 70 years, these people are carted off into Babylon, and the land is given rest. I don't think we can grasp. Actually, you know what? We probably can come close. I'm just thinking about this now. In 9-11, when the Pentagon was attacked, 
and we thought the White House was going to be attacked. Can you imagine if that had happened? What, like, what that would have felt like? The temple to these people was like the center of religious and political life. Everything revolved around it. It was the symbol of their pride and glory. And these Chaldeans, these Babylonians come in and they destroy it. This was, in Jewish thinking, this was not just the center of their world. It was the center of the world. This is where heaven and earth met. God dwelled there. So if it's destroyed, what does that mean? What happened to God? This is, this is what is going through the psyche of the Israelites. Is, did our God just lose to another God? So it just wrecks everything about them. And God allows them to be taken into Babylon, into captivity. And as you saw there, it says, until 70 years of the desolation was completed. So most scholars would, would say that this desolation, this exile lasts somewhere around 70 years before people are allowed to start returning to Israel. You say there that it says that the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, were the one that did this. So these people are carted off. They're there. Generations are born there, one of whom is Zerubbabel, whose, whose name means like offspring of Babylon. He's born there. Generations are born there, but they still got their keys. They're ready to go home. And when Persia comes in and takes over Babylon, their king issues this decree that they can return. So if you follow on in that in that passage in 2 Chronicles 36, he goes on to say this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put it in writing. So this is a foreign king with these people living in his kingdom who are serving him, and God does this thing inside of him, and this is what he says. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord... The God of the heavens has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord be with him. It's fascinating. King Cyrus here is moved by God to build God a temple, foreign God. <laughs> Just build this temple for them back in Jerusalem like it used to be. So I'm going to set these people free so that they can go back and they can do this for me. It's like he's proud of himself that he's going to do this, but really he's going to have the Hebrews do it. He's like, you go back and build, build that thing to your God. So I say all these things to sort of set the stage for the fact that these people are living in a foreign land. Their temple's destroyed. Life is over. Religious and political life is destroyed. God's left. We don't know where he is. What are we going to do? All of that takes place in the first part or the middle part of Matthew's genealogy. And then you get to verse 12 of chapter 1 of Matthew. After the exile to Babylon, like a whole lot took place in that. <laughs> after, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. In exile. Offspring of Babylon, Zerubbabel is born. And then he is allowed, as part of this now diaspora of people, to return to Jerusalem, to go back up the hill to Jerusalem and build a temple for God. He returns to rebuild. He's never even seen this place, scholars don't think. 
Now, he was born into a good situation. He was part of a kingly family. And so they were kind of given special privileges. So he probably learned some diplomacy. He, probably had, he was probably well-to-do. And he goes back with this stuff, and he's like, okay, I'm one of the first ones back. Let's build a temple. Let's get back at it. And he's called the governor of Judah, which is the land where that Jerusalem was. He's, he's in charge of this area, and he's ruling with another priest named Joshua. And he's told by God to build the temple. The Spirit rouses him to do it, it says. Somehow, whether God spoke to him directly, it seems like, through a prophet, or something inside of him was like, I have to do this. I must do this. God is worthy of this, as we were just singing. He's worthy of it. So let's build this place for him. In the back of their minds being, and then God will come back. Then the glory will return. Remember that glory that fills the temple when Solomon builds it? It's like a fire, and people fall down, and they're terrified, worshiping. They're thinking, if we build this thing again, ah, if we build it, he will come, right? Like, if, if we build it, God will come back, and his glory will be here. And the Spirit rouses him to do it. And he gets these other people and these thousands of refugees come back. They've got their keys. They go back and they start building. But look at what they do first. There's a, there's a, a spiritual implication here for us. Ezra chapter 3. Okay, just Bible, Bible background for you. Kings, then Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. It's kind of, Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of seen as one Book. That's why these prophets, these minor prophets, Ezra and Nehemiah, are not at the end of the Old Testament. They're here because this was one big story. That Chronicles happens, they return from Babylon, and then you get Ezra speaking to the people through God. When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, they're back, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. Jeshua, son of Josedek and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, began to build the altar. They began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundations and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it uh, to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding peoples. So there are still occupiers and bad guys in the land. And they start building this altar to offer sacrifices to God. They celebrated the festival of shelters or tabernacles as prescribed and offered burnt, sacrifice, or burnt offerings each day based on the numbers specified by ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offering and the offerings for the beginning of each month and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions as well as the freewill offerings brought to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not been laid. Do you catch what's happening here? They're back after all these years. They've heard about the glory of the temple, but what's the first thing the Spirit rouses them to do? Build an altar. And what you see Zerubbabel doing here is prioritizing worship. <laughs> he's prioritizing sacrifice before Yahweh, saying he's worthy of this. And he does it before the building of the temple. The temple was supposed to represent heaven and earth being united. 
But he knows that the first step in this process upon return is to build the altar, to reinstitute worship to Yahweh in the place that he called for it. Worship before building. Friends, let me just tell you, there's a lesson in there for us as individuals and as a church. Worship before building. Jess and I were talking last night about the importance of this as we move. (laughs) Worship before building. We are a worshiping people at the altar of God first and foremost through Jesus. Building, it doesn't actually matter where it is. What matters is worship, and that applies to our personal lives as well. Worship at the altar first. And in the midst of resistance, of onlooking naysayers, which they hear from, you read about that in Nehemiah, people persecuting them, attacking them, telling them, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Sending letters back home to the king. They shouldn't be doing this. In the midst of all of this, these people are like, no, no, no. God's worth it. We're going to build an altar because he should be worshiped. And we're going to follow the things that Moses told us to do. And we're going to offer these sacrifices because you know why? We are a sinful, broken people. And that's what these offerings are for, is is to speak to us and to speak to God that we are in need of forgiveness, that we are in need of, of atonement. And so we're going to do that first and foremost before the big glorious temple gets built. Worshiping and centering on God was of utmost importance to both Zerubbabel and to Joshua, the priest that was sort of the the co-pilot with him in this endeavor. But then they do get on to building the temple. If you go into Haggai, which is a book in the minor prophets, sort of in the the latter 80% of your Old Testament, Short two-chapter book. It's basically a prophet who's speaking to the people and mainly to Zerubbabel about what they're supposed to be getting done while they're there and back in the land. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you, the declaration of the Lord of armies. It says the people, even when they saw the second temple completed, they were like, meh. It paled in comparison to what Solomon had built. And as they're working on it, they're probably being discouraged, feeling like, oh man, this stinks. It's really, anybody... I'm not an artist. Anybody ever tempted to make art and you get, look at it and you're like, ugh, this, this is not good. Leave this to the professionals. Like whatever I've attempted here, terrible. I had something so good in my mind. That is not it, right? Like that's what's happening. They're working on this and they're like, ah, this is really, it's really not that great. But God comes along and he says, work, work, 
For I am with you. In Zechariah 4, a, a, a passage that's actually foundational for our denomination, he says, despise not the day of small things. Despise not the day of small things. God's doing something, and he's asking you to join him in building it. Work, for I am with you. Do you hear Emmanuel in this? God with us. Saying work, 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 for I am with you. In Zechariah, another prophet who speaks to this situation, he comes along and God says, tell them your building of this is not going to be by power or by might. It's by my spirit that this building, this, this thing that you're doing is being built. This people that you are forming, this worship you are doing, and the building of the temple it's not by your power, by your might, by your skill, by your artistry. It's by my spirit that I am doing it. It was the spirit's job, I believe, to unite heaven and earth. It was the spirit who was at work through them. What does Paul tell us? To will and to, to work. He energizes us to do the work that he calls us to. And again, there's this sense of recentering properly around Yahweh that he would join them in this enterprise to work for what actually mattered. Their hearts, calling them back to God so that their lips do the right things and their hearts are doing the right things. It's a work of the Spirit. The people come and they ask about fasting. They're like, should we be doing the fasts? Should we be doing like the full extent of the law? What do you want us to do? And God's like, listen, it's really never been about that. He tells them, basically, love one another and get on with the building. It's fascinating. Fascinating. And then God, speaking to Zerubbabel, offers us this, I mean, it's, it's, nothing, it's a prophecy, I think, but it meant something to Zerubbabel in his time. He says, Zerubbabel, you are my signet ring. You're my authority in this land. What you're doing is going to speak to the Gentile nations around you. You're my signet ring. Do you, do you guys know what a signet ring is? It was like this, this imprinting ring. It, it, it carried authority. It carried weight. Often carried the image of its bearer or who it represented by the diplomat. I have this, um, this thing. We loan books out all the time, and so I got tired of like, trying to write my name in them or losing them or whatever. So it just got me this, um, I don't even know what it's called. It's a stamp, I guess, that I... Squeeze it, and it, is that an embosser? Is that an embosser? Okay, I don't, I don't know. But I know it's on the first pages of my books, and it says, from the library of Jim Ent or James Entwell, so I forget what it says. It might be very official, I don't know. But it's meant to say, like, this is mine. Give it back. No, this is mine. It's got my image on it, in a way. And that's, God's telling Zerubbabel, you're my image. I'm putting you there. You're my authority. You're representing me. This is my work, and you're in charge of it. To bring justice to the nations, he says. But as they're building, there's this hint all along that things are not going as they should. That it's not all right. They keep working, and it's fits and starts, and, but it's not right. And the people are crying about the fact that God's former glory is, is not there because the truth of the matter is, in Ezekiel, he tells us that the glory of God leaves the temple, lifts up and leaves in this dramatic image and, and goes away before the exile. 
And the people are sensing, and it's not back yet. Something's not right. Something's off. And God comes and speaks to this. In Haggai 2.9, he says this, The final glory of this house will be greater than the first. Seemed weird because it wasn't. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, or the Lord of hosts, yours might say. He's saying the final glory of this house is actually going to be even greater than the first one. People never saw it. I, I love going to music. Uh, I love going to music. I love music. I love going to concerts. I love music. I love going to concerts. And I've talked about them before. My favorite band, Fish. I have stayed through the end of the show to when the lights come up and I get to see the roadies come out and break things down. When they show up in 18 tractor trailers, like, I want to see what happens. Like, how do they get this all back out of here? But there's this sense when a show ends, it's like the lights come up and it's like, ah, the glory's gone. Like that... Man, I mean, I love music. Like, you just feel it. Like, it's like, like the air goes out. It's, it's done. For you older folks, when Elvis would finish a concert, they would actually have to come out and tell people, Elvis has left the building. You can go home now. It's over. There is no more. You see, these people, when they build the temple in Solomon's era and God's glory comes, it's amazing. But years later, it leaves. God has left the building. The glory has gone out of the place. The lights have come up. The show's over. And the people are desperately wondering, where is it? When will it come back? This dinky little second temple that we're building, it doesn't quite seem to be like the first one. God, what are you doing? And he comes along and he says, the glory of this one's going to be even greater than the first one. And they're like, but where? Where is it? N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, says, the people are back in the land, but they're still in exile. They're still under rule, Persia ruling them from a distance. It doesn't feel like the promised land. Then the Greeks, then the Romans. 400 years of this dinky little second temple and God's glory not yet returned. And they're saying, where is it? We worked, we did the thing. Why, why is it not back? And this is why you have the rise of things like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are like, we'll get it right and then God will come back. We must be doing something wrong. We're going to get it all right, and then God will come back. Then his glory will come and fill this earth, and he'll kick out the nasty Romans, and we won't be in exile anymore. We'll be back in the promised land. Ah, please bring it back. The 400 years of waiting for this to happen, they're back in the land, but the exile drags on until that night when Jesus comes. The glory of God the baby, the fullness of God comes incarnate into our midst, friends. The glory of God, the return from exile finally reaching its telos, its, its maturity, its completion, its end in Jesus Christ himself, God on earth, the living temple himself. And Jesus comes worshiping, loving others, giving glory to God at every time that he can amidst great resistance from the enemy around him telling him to stop. Born into exile, 
to set the captives free. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And in Jesus, heaven and earth are united perfectly in his person and in his kingdom, in his work, in our hearts. John 2 tells us that Jesus is performing a miracle. Performs a miracle, starts speaking out against the Pharisees, and like, by what sign do you do this? He goes into the temple, and he drives out the money changers, the temple that he calls my father's house. He drives out the corruption that's there. And he says, this should be a place of prayer. And John writes that, Really what was happening is the spirit had roused him and he says, zeal for my father's house consumes him. He's so zealous for God, moved by the spirit that he goes in and clears this out and they're like, how dare you? Give us a sign that you would do this. And he says, tear this temple down and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they're like, it took us all these years to build it. How could you possibly do that? And John inserts this little interpretation. He says, he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. Tear it down, and in three days I will rebuild it. Friends, Jesus' crucified but risen body is the new temple, is the glory of God in its fullness. But let's remember the order. Before the new temple can be established, before this resurrected temple can be reborn, before the glory of God can come in its fullness in that way, what has to come first? The altar. Just like Zerubbabel built. Here we have Jesus willing to go to the altar of the cross, properly worshiping God, even though the world hates him for it. Willing to die on our behalf, taking the penalty for our sins, so that in the resurrection, the new temple is born. And the Spirit of God breaks out of it. Jesus is the first one back from exile, uniting heaven and earth, on earth as it is in heaven, he prays. And he says, the new temple is here. God's Spirit has been released. It can dwell in every one of you. And then he asks you, do you believe this? Will you join me in this work? Will you work because I am with you, energizing you to do the work of the Spirit, bringing about renewal in our world, in our lives, in our community, in our church, in one another? So the question for us as we finish this sort of Old Testament portion and move into Jesus, Joseph, and then Jesus, the question for us this week is, someday God is going to bring his full glory to earth. We long for that day. We're living in an already not yet reality. We can taste it, the first fruits of it, but we know that still it's not as great as it will be someday. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess someday when Jesus shows up. Like the glory fills the temple. When Jesus' glory fills the earth someday, man, people see it, there's gonna be no choice. I can't help but bow the knee. When that happens... There'll be no choice, but now, in the meantime, as we wait, exiles back in the land, sort of, what do we do? Well, I would argue, as Jesus followers, we hope. 
we work. We hope and believe that someday that's going to come, and we work. And he wrote in another article I read this week, says, Jesus is coming back, so plant a tree. What's that mean? We work, believing that we are building God's kingdom with him. And it will last into eternity. The good things we do in the name of Christ will last into eternity. I don't quite understand how, but I don't believe that it's all going to be burned up in justice. The good things we do will last. Jesus is coming back. Go plant a tree. And he's made a way. Here's the choices today. He has made a way for you and me to come back from the exile into the promised land of God. He offers that to us to dwell in you, to make his home in you, John records for us. Have you believed this? Is this a reality for you? It sounds like a little kid's prayer, Jesus, come live in my heart. But it's deep truth. Have you prayed that? Have you thought through that? Have you made that decision to say like, yeah, you know what? Okay, I don't even get all the ramifications of that, but I know that Jesus is worth it. I can tell that he loves me. Come and live in my heart. We'll take it from there. Like, we'll figure it out from there. Have you processed that, thought through that, made that decision? Are you still trying to earn what only Christ can give you? The glory of God. Trying to find that in these other ways. Trying to earn God's presence in your life. Or if you have believed this, what are you working on? (laughs) Is it just your stuff, your life? Your sphere of influence, your job, your grades, your sports, whatever. Or are you saying, by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to join with Jesus in doing a deeper work? Maybe still doing those exact same things, but roused by the Spirit to do something new with Jesus. You've been welcomed back, now what? Are you working on building God's kingdom Moved by the Spirit, energized by the Spirit, but moved to build God's kingdom kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Peter tells us that we are living stones, part of this new temple that Jesus is building on the earth. Not by my work, not by my might, not by my strength, but by his Spirit, we partner with him to say, Jesus, let's do this. Let's glorify you in this area of my life. Let me work towards that. Maybe it's an area of maturity. Maybe it's a friend that you know you really want to share Jesus with. Maybe it's doing a really good job at your vocation to the glory of God by the power of his spirit. Working as living stones to build the temple that is Jesus. Are you working to show his glory to the world around you through the way that you love your family, through the way that you perform on the sports field, through the grades that you get, through the way that you spend your money? Working because I am with you. You've come back. I'm with you now. Let's do this together. As we wait for the full return, come Lord Jesus. As we wait for the full return, the glory of God to shine brightly on this earth, are you worshiping? At the core of it, that's what life is. You're either worshiping God or you're not. Are you worshiping God with everything you are? I want to read a section from Isaiah 40. This is the bookend of what I read earlier. Comfort, comfort my people, right? Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare me? 
Or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up and see. He's saying literally, look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Friends, we get to join together with the God who never loses strength by the power of his spirit to run and not become weary, to soar on wings like eagles, to have our strength renewed, to walk and not be faint, and to join God in the work of building his kingdom. Do you believe that this Christmas? Let's pray.